Welcome back to Coach Class with me, Don Birch. This is the podcast where I get to speak to inspirational leaders from across the globe. And I tell you what, I am absolutely delighted this week to welcome onto the podcast Doug Gurr. Now, Doug and I, we spent a little bit of time together at ASDA, but he was educated at Cambridge. He studied mathematical, what I'm going to describe as tripos, and it might be the wrong pronunciation, but that's how little I know. He taught maths and computing in Denmark. He uh, then went on to McKinsey. He had stints at ASDA. He was at Amazon, and he's the chair of the British Heart Foundation. My goodness, I just picture you, Doug, when I imagine, I still think of that as the YBM when you were on stage almost doing the kind of matrix thing. That's how I remember you. Welcome to Coach Class. Thanks, Tom. It's uh, great to be here and very nice to catch up. It's been a couple of years since those days, but it's been uh, an awful lot of fun. Now, just tell us a little bit about yourself then. So, you know, clearly educated at Cambridge, you then ended up going into sort of academia, I guess, and teaching. What was your what was your start point? How do you describe your journey to, to where you are today? I think the honest answer, Tom, is pretty random. I mean, if you look at my path, yeah, yeah look, I started out as an academic teaching maths and computing in Denmark. Uh, I then came back to the UK. By the way, if you want to go further back, I was I was born here in the in Leeds, of course, uh, but my parents are New Zealanders and I grew up in Africa. So it was always a, a quite a global view. But anyway, started the career, uh, as you say, teaching maths and computing in Denmark, decided that wasn't for me, came back to the UK, worked for the government for a bit, decided that wasn't for me, uh, went into consulting because I got at that point excited about, you know, look, the world is kind of run by people who get out there and do things and uh, most of the people I met who were doing things were in business, so I thought I'd love to do that. But when you've trained as a, an academic and a public servant, you don't know a lot. So I spent some time in consultancy, which was great, six odd years at McKinsey. Uh, and then there was this thing called the Internet, which was coming around. So I thought that looks fun. So I quit McKinsey and spent the next five years doing a pure blank sheet of paper Internet startup, which which went pretty well. We, you know, we grew it from nothing to about 250 million turnover in five years, floated it, sold it. Uh, and I was going to take a break uh, when I was very fortunate to get a call from our old our old team at ASDA. And uh, Andy, who you and I both know well, called me up and said, look, come and spend some time here. And uh, it was a great fit. It was in Leeds, which I've always loved and was keen to get back there. It was a huge interest in global business. But I think most importantly, and I spent a little bit of time of ASDA in my McKinsey days, uh, just had such a fantastic culture. And we'll, I'm sure we'll come back and talk about culture. But anyway, so it came to ASDA where you and I spent some time. I think about four and a half years there. And then I quit again and rocked up at Amazon, uh, spent an amazing, uh, I think, nine plus years at Amazon, a couple of years in the UK as the number two. I had the chance to go and run our businesses in China uh, for about three years and then came back and spent the last five years running the UK business. And that was me right up until um, sort of the back end of last year when I decided uh, five years are up, what next? And thought I'd do something completely different. So I have a new day job, which is director of the Natural History Museum. And, and I love the the cadence. Is this kind of like five, you know, okay, Amazon was nine years. But I guess part of the reason Amazon was a little bit longer was just, one, it's an amazing organisation. I mean, just growing and just like expanding and moving into so many interesting places. But also you're in China for some of that. And China is just a completely different universe. Talk, talk to me a little bit about what it's like leading an American-based company, but in a part of the world that's just very, very alien to Western ways. I mean, it was an extraordinary learning experience. And as you say, Dom, it, it stretches you in a number of really interesting ways. There's the there's the how do you operate in China? And it's and China's complicated. You know, it's this 
this almost bizarre paradox of on the one hand, it's the most, you know, entrepreneurial, fast moving, go getting, almost the most capitalist society you've ever met. But it's bolted on to what's effectively this sort of, you know, a, a communist party, very tightly structured state. So it's a really odd place to operate. Um, so that was interesting. Uh, trying to run a, um, a Western technology company in that environment was particularly interesting. And I think Amazon was more or less the last of the major tech companies still operating out there. Google had gone, Twitter had gone, Facebook had gone. So it was a very interesting position from that point of view. And then, of course, as a leadership perspective, it was fascinating. I mean, we had about, I think at the time, 6,000 people in China. And I think including me, there was only 11 of us who were expats, if you like. And I arrived there not speaking a single word of Chinese and said, how do you actually engage with a team that's, you know, that's that's very local, that, you know, most of them don't speak English and, you know, it's complex and how you actually going to, you know, does the same basic approach that you've learned still work was the real question. So it was a fascinating situation. I learned an absolute ton. And I, I loved my time out there. And it was probably one of those really formative experiences. And as you said, it was it was that that sort of, that was probably the reason why Amazon ended up being two lots of five rather than just one. <laughs> now, you're somebody who strikes me that you have no fear, Doug. And and I say that with, you know, warmth in my heart that, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's a sense that, you know, when I Googled you and, you know, I, you know one, I'm already bound down because, you know, you've got your own Wikipedia page, which says everything and you'll be too humble to admit it. But that is like, a, you know, there's a status symbol of getting your own, your own Wikipedia page. But I also found out that you'd run the Great Wall Marathon. Now, when you were at Asda, I remember there was a, a, a you know, there was a moment where we think we had an Olympian downstairs on an exercise bike and Andy, <laughs> <laughs> Andy Bond was trying to beat him and then you and Andy ended up and I think people were surprised to find out that in addition to having you know the brain of Britain you're also really really into your fitness into your running into your cycling doing triathlons what is it in you that gives you do you think your drive and your energy and your I guess your desire to I guess prove that more things are possible than you know than mere mortals would think because you just will push yourself. <laughs> I, I want to get under the skin of Doug Gurr. Where you want to get under the skin. Where does that come yeah, from? Yeah. Well, look, it's a it's a great question, Dom, and it, it, I think it really comes back to you know a couple of things that I, I think I've certainly whether I've learned them or whether I picked them up over the years. But there's there's something somebody very wise said to me once a while back that that has struck and resonated for a long time, and he said to me, "Look, there's a number." And as you as you pointed out, I started out back in the day as a maths geek, so I should probably know about numbers. He said, there's a number, and that number's 168. And I said, okay, what's that? And he said, you know, that's the number of hours that we each have in a week. We each have 168 hours, and that's nothing you can do to change that. And we have to split those, broadly speaking, between some of them you better allocate to sleep, because trying not to sleep turns out to be a bad idea. Some of them you're going to spend, uh, for most of us, at work, and that'll be a big chunk. And then what's left is pretty much everything else. And if you sleep, you know, eight hours a night, and if you work, as say, let's say 55, 56 hours, all you've got left is 56 hours to do everything else. And so that has a couple of implications. First of all, you know, you better enjoy the time you spend at work because that could be a third of your time. Um, but secondly, you know, you want to be really thoughtful about how you choose to spend that time because there's nothing you can do to change it. And, you know, it's a bit like that trap some of us fall into of, oh my goodness, let me just work longer or work harder. And it just doesn't work. You know, you've, you've got to actually treat the single most precious commodity we all have as, as that time. And when you start to think in those ways, you start to think, well, how do I want to spend it? 
And I've always been a great believer in balance. You know, I sit there and uh, I think about, right, I've got a chunk of my life, which is friends and family. I've got a chunk of my life, which is the day job, if you like. I've got a chunk of my life, which is sport, because that's a great, you know, relaxation outset. I've got a chunk of my life, which is the sort of nonprofit, give something back, if you like. And then there's a little bit of trying to do something wacky and creative on the side. And so I've been a little bit of, you know, if you're if time is the constraint and how you allocate it, then I am a believer in set yourself some goals. I try and sit down every year and just say, well, what do I want to do this year across each of those five? What do I want to be? Where do I want to be in five years? Um, and it's not really much more complicated than that. It's just an acceptance that, you know, if you want to get anything done, it's probably better to have some kind of a plan rather than to just drift and and a real awareness that you know or a real belief if you like that balance matters and um and so that's it and then the advantage of balance by the way dom is that you know what it's it's probably unlikely that everything's going brilliantly everywhere at the same time but um you know if you're having a really terrible day at work you know the fact that you can just say you know what i'm having a terrible day at work but i can just get to the end of the day and jump on a bike or put on a pair of running shoes and just go out decompress and spend some time and feel good about the fact okay i, I was rubbish today but my goodness you know i ran up that hill fast you know at least it gives you some sense <laughs> of self-worth or satisfaction i mean i love the the idea that you know all things in life that when they're made simple it can be strategy it can be coaching one another we're learning on our coaching course at the moment to get out of the way of the other person yeah and actually being quiet and giving them time to think is a creative act in itself you've mm. you've created this space for somebody to be able to explore one of the things that I, re I remember about the strategy days at asda was there were certain things where you needed to be in the pack as an organization there were certain things where you needed to be leading and those leading things you needed to have points of difference yeah. And there was a real simplicity to how we started to think as an organization, because ultimately organizations are really complex, not least because they've got hundreds of thousands of human beings in them who, are, you know, make things difficult because we change Absolutely. mood and, we, and we're motivated and we get bored and all those sorts of things. I just want to move it on to a little bit of, of perhaps mm. some of the things you were thinking about two or three years ago, which was, you know, using augmented reality, using AI robots and how... I guess, with a view to the future, how organisations are beginning to shift, because the pandemic's kind of brought into sharp focus, hasn't it, that we are able to do lots of things remotely, we are able to actually communicate on Zoom and all that kind of stuff, stuff that's been around 20 years, actually, a lot of this stuff, hasn't it? But we, there was this kind of like massive shift now in behaviour. Mm. You know, as someone who's been so close to seeing just what technology can do, and I guess with the ability to look, you know, around the corner that many of us won't be able to see yet... How do you see things changing and how do you see humans working actually fundamentally? How are things going to shift in your view? It's a brilliant question, Dom. And I think it cuts right to the heart of what I'm sure will be, well, I, I'm, I'm personally convinced, let me put it that way, will be, you know, the defining characteristic of how most of us think about certainly the world of work over the next few years. And it really comes back to this fact that, look, when, when we come, I'm sure, to write the history of the early 21st century, I'm pretty sure we'll come to see data and informatics or call it what you like as as being at least as impactful as any of the three previous industrial revolutions over the last 300 years. It's it's that big a deal. And and really, it's a bigger deal because let me give you two ways of thinking about this, which may or may not be helpful. Um, uh, and for me, this was part of um, one of the things that really struck me when I moved from Asda to to Amazon. 
because um, at Asda, I mean, you'll remember this, but like, you know, it was that lovely sort of Walmart phrase. Everything that happens is one customer, one associate, one dollar at a time. So so it was all about ultimately your agent of action, if you like, is an associate, a human being, a colleague. It's somebody who sits there and actually makes something happen. And hence, as you say, the need to come up with simple plans that we could communicate effectively, that can mobilize the actors and inspire and engage hundreds of thousands of colleagues, you know, around the world. And and Asda was brilliant at that. And that's that was one of its core strengths, as are, as are many great sort of retail businesses. And then I switched to Amazon and it was really interesting because lots of stuff was very familiar, you know, customer focus, big tick, you know, being sort of, you know, efficient and understanding that everything you do that adds cost is just adding cost to customers. And so you'd be efficient, big tick. And then the one big difference was that in this Asda world, most things are done by people. And in this Amazon world, most things are done by machines. That was quite a you know, big, big thing for me to learn. And, and the way I tend to articulate, uh, the way I tend, tend to come to speak about it to you know, the young kids joining someone like Asda these days is say, look, fast forward three years, imagine you're running a team, half your team of people, half your team of machines. And those machines be making decisions at a very micro level about, you know, if it's a retailer, how much do we buy and where do we place inventory and what do we show a customer at this particular moment in time? So you've got to think of yourself as, you know, you've got people and we learn how to manage and lead people, but we've also got a machine. So we've got to learn how to manage machines bluntly and machines are not perfect and they make mistakes and they go wrong, sometimes very rapidly, catastrophically and extremely expensively. So you better learn how to manage machines. And so that's the, the sort of interesting thought at that level. And if you then translate that back to, you know, how do we think of ourselves as leaders? Um, I think a lot of the way in which we've thought of ourselves as leaders over the last sort of certainly 100 years has been about, I have to know how to deploy financial capital. And I have to know how to deploy, horrible phrase, but human capital. I have to know how to lead and motivate and engage people. I think we're now in a world in which you have to do not two things, but three things. You have to know how to deploy financial capital. You have to know how to deploy human capital, if I can use that phrase. And you have to know how to deploy technology. And in all the work I've done, whether it's in the commercial organizations or the charities or the nonprofits or the government work, that's it's that last one. You know, do our leaders really understand that, you know, we're in a world now where you don't have two levers, you have three. And if you really want to be successful going forward, you better get up to speed with, you know, how do I face any situation or opportunity or problem? And how do I think it's not just about money? It's not just about people. It's about money, people and technology. I think that's the the big mental model shift we're going to see in, in every organization, I would argue, regardless of whether it's public sector, private sector, charitably, and in every country around the world over the next well, it's happening already. I think it's just going to get faster over the next few years. I mean, we could just delve there for another hour of time. I mean, I just <laughs> there's so many things I just want to pick away at, but we haven't got time. But I don't, I don't want to leave it just there. I just want to ask you quickly about being chair of the Board of Trustees at the British Heart mm. Foundation, because I yeah. guess that's ticking a couple of those boxes that you talk about and you review on an annual basis. You know, it's giving something back, but it's also hugely important. And I guess the work that you do, you can see the human impact of that work changing people's lives my father had a heart attack in 1988 mm. i remember it because reading got to the final of the simod cup and he didn't get to go um but he's you know he's 78 he lives on and is healthy and probably healthier than the rest of us tell me just a little bit about that work and what it means to you i'm really pleased you brought that one up because it, it means a huge amount and um 
And it starts, and, Brit, and the British Heart Foundation is an extraordinary institution. It's been going 60 years now. It's a medical research charity. It was set up by doctors in the UK, really because at the time, you know, cardiovascular or heart disease was the number one killer. And we didn't know anything about it. And the doctors at the time said, look, we've got to be able to understand so we can treat and cure and mitigate. And, and, and heart disease is a really cruel disease, by the way, because it can happen instantly. You know, I mean, there are many horrible diseases, but, you know, but the thing about a heart attack is you can be completely fine and then in moments you're gone. And that could be devastating in terms of its impact. And it was the number one killer. So, so it was a huge saying of how can, we, how can we solve this and the belief that investing in research would do that. And it's been, at one level, unbelievably successful. If you look at the 60-year the data, the, the best way of measuring is what we call age-adjusted mortality. But the age-adjusted mortality rates for cardiovascular have come down by over 70% over that period. Um, that is completely unprecedented. There is no other disease class in the world that's seen that kind of improvement in production. So that's the good news. Um, the bad news is it is still just, but it is still the number one killer globally and here in the UK. So, so the work goes on. And, and the real opportunity and the thing that inspired me to go there was saying, actually, if you look back over the success of the last 60 years, it's come in a number of phases. There was an era of let's just understand what's happening. Then there was a couple of decades when it was all about can we make surgery safer, ultimately culminating in the ability to do heart transplants. And then there was an era which has been most of the last 20, 25 years of drug development and statins and these things. And all of those things, in many cases, were only happened because they were funded by the BHF. It funds two thirds of all cardiovascular research in the UK. Uh, and, but the challenge was it's still the number one killer and the curve of improvement was flattening because after 20, 25 years of drug development, it's diminishing returns. You're up against headwinds of multiple morbidity or obesity. So we needed something new. And and actually what was great was, you know, the willingness of the team there and the board there and the medical director to try and say, right, we've got to do something really radical and breakthrough. Uh, and so most of the last four or five years there, we've been placing some really big bets and, and two in particular are, you know, a decision to say we're going to place a bet into saying how do we actually invest in data and medical science. So we've teamed up with the Turing Institute. We've been funding programs about how can we use all of this Fitbits and monitoring to become much better predictors so we can intervene earlier for better outcomes. And we've been investing in regenerative medicine, completely blue sky stuff, but, you know, in the hope that one day we'll be able to, first of all, predict stuff much earlier and therefore get much better outcomes. And that's where the data side comes in. But also maybe even get to the point where instead of having to go in and do still quite risky invasive surgery, we could actually regrow damaged heart tissues. Ten years ago, we didn't even think that was possible. We know it is. And who knows, in 10 years time, we might actually be doing it. So for me, it's just um, it's a wonderful team. It's a wonderful organization. It's inspiring work. And, you know, why the heck wouldn't you want to go and spend some time, have the privilege to spend some time on something like that? Well, you've just used the word privilege and I'd written it down because I just wanted to say, Doug, it's been an absolute privilege talking to you and catching up. Honestly, you are just one of the most inspiring people that I've come across in my career. I want to also say a big thank you from a colleague of mine, John Buxton. We've worked together over the last few years and he said, if you're interviewing Doug, you need to let him know he was the best manager he's ever had in his career. And John's had a pretty <laughs> decent career. So so I just on that personal note, just honestly, I just want to say thank you for giving up the time and for just being such a fantastic guest on Coach Class. It's been an absolute honour. Dom, you're very kind and it's been an absolute pleasure. 